this is Max. This is Equals. Welcome. Hi, welcome everyone. This is Nadia. So Max, look, let's talk about the big news, right? Last week, the Fight Inequality Alliance had a festival on inequality and it was emceed by our very own Nabil Ahmed. It was good, but it's a bit worrying. I mean, he's clearly making the move to the big screen. Uh, mm. I've heard from a couple of people, actually, rumors that he's now got himself an agent. And I, I thought I saw some gel in his hair. It looked like that to me. It looked like that to me. And honestly, the nerve of this guy to think that last week we were saying you were the Beyonce of this group. Yeah, I know. I think we, we, we know who's really outgrowing the podcast. And, mm. and, and pretty soon it's going to be just me and you. And on that note, given I'm really rubbish at segues, uh, today we're talking about degrowth, aren't we? <laughs> That's right. So while much of the world is talking about getting our global economy growing again as quickly as possible, our guest today says that would actually be a disaster. And the path to equalizing societies, equalizing the world and, and saving the planet is actually to end our obsession with economic growth. Yes, exactly. And Jason Hickel is, is, is who we're interviewing. He's the author of some brilliant books. His most recent one is called Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And honestly, that book has made me think more than anything I've read for a long, long time. He's an economic anthropologist whose research focuses on global inequality, political ecology. And he's a, currently a senior lecturer in anthropology at Goldsmith at the University of London. And he also teaches at the LSE. Um, but it's, it's just it's a fascinating book and a, a really great interview. Indeed. So let's get straight to it then. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on Equals. Really good to be able to talk to you today and really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Max. It's my pleasure to be here. So it is great to have you on. Last week, we were talking about, you know, the need to see foreign aid as reparations to the global South. And, you know, you've done a lot on this issue of the creation of wealth and the colonial history behind that. We'd love for you to tell us a bit more about that. Oh, yes. In terms of the aid discourse. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've been a critic of the aid discourse for some time now. It sort of tells a story, right? The story is that rich countries are sort of these benevolent givers in the world system. They have achieved their greatness, their, their riches sort of on the back of their own hard work, etc. And now they're kind of reaching out and giving generously of their surplus to help poor countries up the development ladder and so on. My problem with this narrative is that it sort of obscures the fact that in reality, rich countries have enrich themselves through historical processes of appropriation that have actually produced and perpetuated underdevelopment in, uh, in the global south. And that even today, this process continues. So the high level of growth and income and consumption that characterizes rich countries today is only possible because of uh, a significant net appropriation of labor, energy, resources, and lands from the global south. And this is documented extensively in the empirical uh, record. Something you've spoken about a lot is, is the kind of counter narrative to what you've just laid out there and what we've talked about on equals quite a lot, which is this kind of, if you like, the Bill Gates picture of uh, progress, basically a consistent reduction in extreme poverty, you know, uh, a rising life expectancy, a kind of a sense in which, yes, we've got a long way to go, but we have come a very positive way in the last few decades. Can you say a little bit about how, why you think that's such a dominant narrative and, and why you think it's wrong? Yeah, so this narrative has, has really sort of emerged and taken hold in the past several years. The idea basically is that even though uh, neoliberal capitalism might be producing lots of inequality, we shouldn't complain too much about the system because um, it's, uh, it's solving the poverty problem, right? 
this narrative hinges entirely on an extremely low poverty line, a dollar ninety a day, which of course we're used to hearing. But the problem is that scholars have critiqued this threshold as totally inadequate for many years. The issue with this threshold is that there's no empirical grounding in actual human needs, right? So we know that people who live on this amount of money or even above it are still deeply in poverty and can't access uh, even basic nutrition to say nothing about uh, shelter, education, you know, housing, um, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. So when we look at the, at the question of uh, poverty trends using more empirically reasonable thresholds, like in the region of $7.40 a day, which is, which is basically what's required for access to good nutrition and a normal life expectancy, then we see that the narrative is not really quite as optimistic as it's normally portrayed. <laughs> now, This is not to say that incomes have not been increasing. Of course they have. Incomes and consumption have increased, but by very small amounts. So basically enough to push people above $1.90, but not enough to lift them out of uh, poverty according to any empirical definition. And so progress against poverty is extremely slow. And at this pace, I mean, we're talking about the daily incomes of, um, of the global poor are increasing by about five cents per year. Okay, that's the rate of increase on average. At this rate, we're talking about it will take hundreds of years before we end poverty according to meaningful empirical threshold. So this is not good enough. Uh, We live in an abundant world economy. There's zero reason for poverty. We can organize economic capacity around serving human needs and provisioning for welfare. But instead, our extraordinary economic capacity is organized instead around capital accumulation and elite consumption. And as a result, despite the abundance of our planet, in our economy, we have a persistent problem of mass poverty. And I think we have to confront that fact, right? Like the global economy is fundamentally not working for the majority of humanity and is not actually designed to work for them. I think what I'm hearing you saying is that so there are different issues here. One of them is about how we define the threshold for for extreme poverty or poverty. And then the other piece is that it's not just about raising the threshold of how we define poverty but also an issue of this persistent capital accumulation, you know, the elite writing the rules and an issue of inequality. And one of the things we've really liked about your work is how you link these various issues together, this linking of capitalism, inequality, and then also climate breakdown. How do you see these things being related? Let me emphasize one fact really briefly. We live in a world economy that's basically organized in such a way that labor and resources in the global south are appropriated on a massive scale to service excess northern consumerism and elite accumulation when they could be used to meet human needs, right? So that's the main sort of structure of the world economy. And this is, this is what's responsible for driving the crisis of both inequality and ecological breakdown. Let me explain what I mean in terms of the latter, right? It's not actually humans as such that are causing this crisis, but rather an economic system that is organized around the interests of powerful states, corporations, and rich individuals. We can see this when it comes to climate change very clearly, where we know that rich countries are overwhelmingly responsible for historical emissions. A recent study that we published in The Lancet demonstrates that the countries of the global north are responsible for 92% of all emissions in excess of the safe planetary boundary. So that means they're responsible for 92% of the damages caused by climate breakdown. And of course, those damages we know fall disproportionately on poorer countries and communities in the global south that have done nothing to cause this crisis. Okay? 
In fact, most countries in the global south are still well within their fair share of the planetary boundary. So for decades, scholars in the global south have been pointing out that this amounts to what they describe as a process of atmospheric colonization. The atmosphere is a commons, which all of us depend on for our survival, but a small faction of rich countries have effectively appropriated it for their own enrichment with severe consequences for all of life on Earth. And so I think we have to keep that, you know, that colonial dimension in mind. And it's true not only for climates, but also for other crises of ecological breakdown, such as you know, habitat destruction and biodiversity collapse. That part of the crisis is being driven by excess resource use, you know, not just emissions, but all of the material stuff that we extract and produce and consume each year. And remember, this excess resource use is comprised of materials that are extracted and appropriated from the global south, right? So the benefits are captured in rich countries, but the ecological impact is basically offshored to poorer countries. And, and this is obvious if you just look around at the things that uh, sort of the industries in the north, right? The beef industry in the USA depends on deforestation in the Amazon. The tech industry in Germany depends on mining in the Congo. The cosmetic industry in Britain depends on palm oil plantations in Indonesia and so on, right? So, so if you read, for example, the People's Agreement of Cochabamba, which was signed in 2010 by hundreds of social movements from the global south, they are explicit that the ecological crisis is ultimately a problem of colonization and appropriation. These are the words they use, and they demand an anti-imperial struggle in response. So while in the north, we tend to see the crisis as a problem of technology, in the south, they understand that it's ultimately a problem of appropriation. I think I think I think you're right. I think what struck me reading your latest book, and which was brilliant, by the way, was the the the, the way you bring those things together. Because I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I'm I I don't have a history or background in climate change. You know, that isn't a part of Oxfam's work that I've ever been a, a huge part of, and I'm much more involved in it now. And seeing those two come together, what really struck me was the arguments you clearly made that the idea that we can grow our way out of this problem in a green way was just completely fictional that that level of extraction was just not possible and even if we were all driving electric cars we'd have to have mines the size of south america can you say a little bit about that because that was a real that was quite an eye-opener for me i'll be honest so scholars have understood for a long time that gdp growth is the single biggest driver of ecological breakdown and of course the thing about growth is that it doesn't come out of thin air right (laughs) it's it's very tightly coupled to resource use and energy use So the dominant response to this conundrum is to say, don't worry, all we need to do is make growth green, right? So in other words, continue to pursue GDP growth while at the same time reducing resource use and energy use, which we can do just by making our technology more efficient and blah, blah, right? But unfortunately, it has no empirical grounding. And this is a really important point. So several years ago, a colleague and I um, uh, investigated, we we did a, a review of the scientific literature on the question of green growth, and we found that there are basically two fundamental problems with the theory. First, all existing studies, empirical studies, conclude that GDP growth cannot be absolutely decoupled from resource use, even under very high efficiency conditions. The second problem has to do with climate change. Obviously, we know that it's possible to decouple GDP from emissions by switching to renewable energy, right? The problem is that it's unlikely that high-income nations will be able to reduce their emissions fast enough to stay within the carbon budget for 1.5 or 2 degrees, which is rapidly shrinking, if they continue to pursue growth at the same time. And the reason is because the more we grow, the more energy we use. And the more energy we use, the more difficult it is 
to cover it with renewables in the short time we have left. I think it's, it's clear that it's time to take a different approach. Now, I want to emphasize the fact that this is only a problem when it comes to rich countries. Obviously, low-income countries need to grow their economies in order to meet human needs. And that's fine because they are still well within planetary boundaries. It's rich countries that are, problem, or that are the problem because rich countries are the ones driving overshoot and have GDP per capita levels that are way in excess of what is actually needed to meet human needs, even at a very high standard. The conclusion basically boils down to the fact that rich countries need to abandon growth as an objective and urgently focus on reducing uh, excess resource use and energy use. And we know that high levels of well-being can be achieved with just a fraction of the resources and energy that rich countries use if they organize their economies around meeting human needs rather than around capital accumulation and elite consumption. So that's that's clear. And I feel like it's really helpful that you separated out what needs to happen with with rich economies versus those that are, are um, still low income or middle income. And I guess one of the questions I have is, isn't there some sort of reliance here, you know, in this interdependent globalized world that we live in? I mean, even just earlier, you were saying, you know, a lot of these sectors in rich countries rely on extracting uh, within these uh, poorer countries, or, you know, we can look at the opposite flow, for example, with remittances, with a lot of poorer countries having workers uh, in richer economies and then sending back remittances to their countries and those countries really relying on that for their sustainability. So given that interdependency, is it possible to decouple growth in uh, developing countries versus growth in rich countries? This is a, a key problem to, to focus on. Now, the main principle here is that existing trade arrangements are actually really detrimental to, to global South countries in that it, it, uh, it perpetuates patterns of net appropriation of labor and resources right from the global South. Most of the yields of all of that economic activity in the South are captured as GDP in the North, and very little basically trickles down to poor countries where the labor is, where the labor and resources are extracted. So the question becomes, how do you, you know, how do you break out of this destructive pattern? And the solution actually is in the progressive history of the post-colonial struggle in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when progressive leaders and economists were trying to focus on using domestic capacity, like national domestic capacity in poor countries, to meet domestic needs. That's exactly the pattern that we should follow today. What does that mean? That means using tools like tariffs and subsidies to build domestic industries, to substitute imports and meet domestic needs as much as possible, right? So economists from the Global South have been, have been drawing on modern monetary theory to point out that what you can do is you can issue the national currency to fund three urgent objectives. The first is funds a full suite of universal public services, healthcare, education, housing for all. Okay. The second thing is to achieve food sovereignty. So reduce your imports of food from the global north and instead use your lands with regenerative farming to, to provide healthy food for your entire population and to achieve energy sovereignty uh, through renewable energy transition. Right. Um, this reduces reliance on imports and on finance from the global north, thereby basically liberating you from remote control power by creditors like the World Bank and the IMF and Wall Street investment banks and so on. Right? And you can, in terms of the labor components, and this is the, the third uh, piece of the puzzle, is you can fund a public job guarantee right, to end unemployment right, and mobilize domestic labor around 
these objectives. I want to emphasize that the objective that we need to aim for when it comes to this dual question of achieving ecological stability and ending poverty, you know, achieving development and so on in the global south, is, is effectively a pattern of convergence, right? We need rich countries to dramatically reduce their resource use to get back within sustainable levels, right? To bring their economies back into balance with the living world. While in poor countries, we need to reclaim resources to meet human needs at a high standard, right? And to improve our economic capacity. You make it sound so, so plausible. Uh, <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the, 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 the politics around such a transition is enormous, isn't it? Uh, you're very clear about the fact that inequality and climate destruction are very much linked how is kind of greater equality going to also help stop climate breakdown and particularly the getting our quality of life from a much lower level of GDP? We know for a fact that we have to reduce aggregate global energy and resource use in order to bring our economy back into balance with the living world. So the question becomes then, do we constrain the resource use of the rich and ensure that everyone has access to what they need for a good life, which is what degrowth and eco-socialism basically call for? Or do we constrain the resources of the poor in order to maintain the privileges of the rich, which is basically the existing pattern of imperialist eco-fascism, right? So we have that choice to make. And for me, the answer is clear, that we need to, to tackle the question of inequality as a fundamental issue uh, when it comes to ecology. And yeah, so I think the public services thing really does become important here because public services are decommodified. So, and this is important to understand the distinction between commodities and, and non-commodities. GDP growth only measures commodities. It only measures value, the value of commodities and in terms of prices. So things that don't have prices or are not commodified are not counted in GDP. So for example, subsistence farming, or if you cook for your family, or if you take care of your elderly parents, or if you access a public service, the value you get from doing these things is not captured in GDP. And public services are huge here because when you decommodify key goods like housing, healthcare, education, transportation, energy, internet, you know, the basic things that people need to live good lives, when you decommodify them and ensure that everyone has universal access, then people can access the goods they need to live well without needing high incomes to do so. By contrast, when you have privatized public services, they're very expensive. And so in order to access them, you have to have high incomes. Like when you decommodify privatized services, like take the US, health, the US healthcare system, if you decommodified that, this would result in a significant reduction of US GDP. Because um, you're basically taking a big chunk of the economy out of the market, right? So you would have a, a decline in GDP, and yet healthcare outcomes and people's access to good lives would improve significantly. And so this is a clear indication of how the relationship between GDP and welfare breaks down, right? So this is known in economics as the Lauderdale paradox, where uh, GDP often grows at the expense of what we of public wealth, basically of commons. Mm -hmm. And the other thing here is that we know empirically that public services are almost always less resource intensive. The efficiency of public services, both in terms of resources, cost, and delivering outcomes, is really powerful. And so what we need to do is we just need to recognize that um, that we have presently a system that is organized around cheapening labor and resources and people and lives and instead shift to a system that doesn't do that, a system that values those things and recognizes their value and celebrates them. And that just basically means shifting to a post-capitalist economy <laughs> where the principle of cheapening is abolished. That's really fascinating. And I think that's exactly it. 
What's your sense in, in particularly looking at the last year, thinking that we've had this insane crisis, the, the second crisis in, in a decade, a huge economic impact. And I think at the beginning, a lot of progressives were getting excited about making the most of this opportunity. It's like kind of a year and a bit on. Were you hopeful then? Are you still hopeful now? Do you see kind of any parallels between the climate crisis and the COVID one? What's your take on all that? Do you feel any better now, <laughs> post-COVID? Or, or yeah, where, where's your hope yeah. in all of this? Gosh, well, yeah, no, I think that um, I think that COVID opened some windows of sort of intellectual opportunity, but also didn't yield very much, right? Like the, the overwhelming response in the wake of the COVID crisis was basically we need to, uh, to, to step on the accelerator of growth in order to recover and uh, and so on, right? Like the recovery narrative has been f- focused entirely around GDP growth, not around what can we do to make sure that everyone's needs are met, basic needs are met, right? Um, or even basic healthcare needs. This to me has is, is, is reaffirmed the extent, has sort of, I guess, illustrated the extent to which our economies are so overwhelmingly dependent on and focused around growthism. And the consequences are going to be disastrous when the data comes out on the extent to which this has caused emissions to rise or not fall fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to be a reckoning. On the other hand, I think that the, the crisis, the COVID crisis did make people aware of the facts that, look, there's basically an emergency break, right? Like we've been told forever that there's no such thing as an emergency break. There's no way that we could we could uh, shift to a post-growth society. It turns out that when push comes to shove, you actually can pull the emergency break. The problem is that, of course, during the COVID crisis, the emergency break they pulled was basically to, to shut down industries or sectors that we actually really need, right? So they shut down, you know, schools, cafes, gyms, recreational facilities, theaters, things that actually are really beneficial to to human well-being, right? And what kept going was things like SUV production and and private jets and yacht production and so on, right? So but I think that we can take that insight and imagine a different kind of of use for it, right? What if we started to use policy to purposely slow down industries we don't actually need? SUVs, fast fashion, military production, advertising, the beef industry, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are huge chunks of our economy that actually, they're actually totally irrelevant to human well-being and are organized almost exclusively around elite consumption and capital accumulation. And so we could slow those down and that would go a long way toward bringing resource use back to, uh, back to sustainable levels. So I think that's kind of the key lesson we need to derive from this crisis and think about what it would look like, like to shift to a post-growth economy. But in terms of your question about what gives me hope, I don't think that I see, okay, I don't see too much hope in like conventional discourse on uh, the response to climate breakdown. I think that where the hope lies is this, is in two places. Um, And this really is more a point about strategy than about, you know, hope in some kind of abstract la-la sense. Our hope lies in two things. First, to unite the environment movement with uh, working class movements and formations. This is absolutely essential. And the reason is because environmentalists alone do not have the political power that is necessary to radically change our economy. Okay, Working class movements do. Right now, the unions are basically focused on growthism because they see growth as the only way to ensure good livelihoods and wages for their members. And I understand that. That effectively means lining up with, uh, with capital to service the needs of capital and hope that some kind of tri- trickles down to workers. We, we need a much more direct and political approach to say, let's meet workers' needs directly with um, a public job guarantee to ensure full employment, strong living wage laws, right, a shorter working week, 
and a social guarantee that ensures that everyone has access to affordable housing and robust, high-quality, universal public services. Once you take the question of livelihoods and employment off the table, then we can have an open discussion about shifting to a post-growth economy and scaling down industries that we don't actually need, right? And the second thing I would say just very briefly is that it's essential that environmentalist movements in the global north create alliances with anti-imperialist struggles in the global south that have been focused on these issues for decades, right? We have the people's agreements of Cochabamba. Almost never, almost, almost nobody in the global north environment movement engages with that text or engages with the organizations that are behind it. So, you know, Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, you know, the Green Party, et cetera, should, you, should, you know, should unite with Cochabamba, with La Via Campesina, with the Land Back Campaign and other anti-imperialist struggles from indigenous communities and global south communities. Like the only successful movements for uh, serious, significant economic change in world history has been the anti-colonial movement. And that is effectively the force that we need to rebuild and mobilize around real transformation in the world economy. That's fascinating and an excellent way to end. And I, I feel like it, it was a bit hopeful and you're right, it wasn't Lala. <laughs> We've covered a lot in here. I actually feel like we need some follow-up conversations with you to dig into some of them. I have, I have a thousand more questions, but I want to thank you so much for being with us today, Jason. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it is such a huge set of topics, but I think the way you knit together these different issues of capitalism, colonialism, and really made me think about this this issue of growth, and hopefully listeners too. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. Whew. I, I know we say this with every single episode, but genuinely I do feel like every single answer he was giving us could have been an entire podcast on their own no no I agree completely I mean and just to say for listeners you know if you check out our Twitter and, and the blog that goes with this podcast because we put lots more links into to Jason's work and, and stuff he's written on, on lots of the issues that were covered including for instance the debate over the reduction in poverty that he's been having with others um, but I think I think that the main thing really is this issue of how we have to stop growing I mean that's the thing that's really stuck with me Absolutely. And like when you, you know, links it with climate, when he said GDP growth is the single biggest factor in climate destruction, it seems so obvious, right? But at the same time, I feel like it's a pretty novel thing to say, isn't it? I mean, he's basically saying it's impossible for us to grow and not destroy the planet. Um, And that's like, you know, it's kind of mind blowing in the world I'm in, especially here in DC in the heart of capitalism and around the work of the IMF and the World Bank. You know, although you hear them constantly talking about, you know, the need to stop climate destruction, at the same time, you never hear people talking about the need to stop growing. I mean, on the contrary, it's how can we get growth back on track? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it- his point is that green growth is an oxymoron, but mm-hmm. you know, for 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 most people, that's the equivalent of saying that the Earth is round, isn't it? Or that we <laughs> we orbit the we orbit the sun, you know. So, uh, and 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 it was certainly a real eye opener for me. And it, it, I like the way he talks about the analogy. So, you know, we we're kind of trained to think of growth as a positive thing. We think about our children growing up, but he then he, he uses the analogy of cancerous growth. You know, the idea that you can grow too much that 
you know, you can move beyond a certain equilibrium in the same way a cancerous cell does. Um, and that really made me kind of look at it in a different way. And certainly it seems abundantly clear, isn't it, that we just can't keep growing the way we are, whether it's green or otherwise, it's just not going to happen. Right. And then when you think about the sheer extractivism of it all, right, just the amount of lithium, for example, needed from mines just to ensure everyone gets to have an electric car. I mean, so it just, you know, reminds us that it's not even just about transitioning away from fossil fuels or a fossil fuel based economy. It's about shrinking our energy use and stopping growth in this economy more fundamentally. I just have tons more questions about everything he was saying about jobs uh, about you know the impact of degrowth in rich economies on poor countries yeah i mean give the example like flowers in kenya you know that every night planes fly from kenya to europe with cut flowers that are grown in these farms around lake naivasha and tens of thousands of women are employed in those farms now they, they could be paid more they could be treated better but they're in, in kenyan terms they're reasonably good jobs and mm -hmm. You know, it, it's hard to think of a more environmentally insane uh, industry, isn't it? You know, flying flowers every night and think of the carbon. I mean, that's got to stop. But at the same time, what happens to those women? What happens to those jobs? You know, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy, is it? Yeah. And he talked a little bit about, you know, the, the link between the two and, uh, and answered some of that question. But I'm sure there's more in the book. So do check it out. Uh, if you haven't had a chance already, also do check out the other episodes we've had this season. This was a really good one. Yeah, it was really good. And uh, it's fantastic to have Jason on. And uh, it has been a great season. So please stay tuned. Recommend us to your friends and, and all those things that you're supposed to do with podcasts. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.